Have you ever felt like nobody was there? Have you ever felt forgotten in the middle of nowhere? Have you ever felt like you could disappear? Like you could fall and no one would hear? Those are the words of a song called You Will Be Found from a musical called Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, it's a... Uh, it's, it's won lots of awards lately, and it's gaining some notoriety because of the, the brilliance of the music within the show, but also because it deals with pretty intense, serious issues of suicide, loneliness, uh, mental health, and hope all at the same time. Uh, the song moves from that beginning to a repeated phrase over and over again, and that phrase is, you are not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. Over and over. Uh, this, this past week, that phrase uh, kind of seems to have taken on some new meaning for me as I've thought about Advent. Uh, in, in its own way, it's, it's communicating something, but, but to me, as I've thought about what it means that we uh, profess that Jesus is the Son of God, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, who was uh, born conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, that, that there is something spectacular about who Jesus was and the fact that Jesus was not uh, just the idea of God being on our side, but somehow something more. We call Jesus Emmanuel. You are not alone. God with us. Uh, our lives are sometimes so tumultuous, so up and down, that it's hard to believe that we're not alone. Uh, why is Christmas such a big deal? Because, oh, shoot, I spelled that wrong. Presents. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate that shout-out right there. Christmas is a big deal. It should be a big deal. But it's because we believe that the presence of God invaded the world in a special way. The idea of, of what we often talk about as God with us, this concept of um, Emmanuel. Adam, I'm having trouble again. If you want to hop out and help me with slides, I don't know why. Um, I'll tell you, I don't have many slides today, um, but it's just some scriptures. This idea of, of, of Jesus being Emmanuel is talked about in the book of Matthew, and we hear about it because uh, we've mentioned this passage more than one time. It's in Matthew 1. You can throw it up on the screen. And so uh, Jesus, or I'm sorry, uh, Mary has just been told that she's going to give birth to the Son of God, and it's going to be this miraculous, amazing thing. Joseph decides uh, he's engaged to Mary at the time. He sees this, he tries to be respectful, but sees that Mary has kind of made her own choices, and so he's going to, with dignity, kind of uh, divorce. It's weird because they're engaged, and they use the word divorce, but there's this cultural reality of he's going to end the promise in as respectful way as he can. And so in the midst of this, he has a dream, and in a dream, this vision of an angel comes to him and says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. We're going to talk about that phrase in two days on Christmas Eve for just a couple minutes. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay, that's a beautiful phrase, but do you know we would never call Jesus Emmanuel. I've got it at the moment, Adam, so we're good now. Came back. We would never call Jesus Emmanuel if there hadn't been some prophecy at some point along the way that talked about it. And so often we claim this without looking at where it came from. So we're going to do a quick lesson on understanding how this idea came about. Because if something hadn't happened in Isaiah 750 years earlier, then this would never have happened and we wouldn't be talking about Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. So let's do that. All right, let me tell you about a guy named Ahaz. Ahaz was a king, and he was a king of the land of Judah, okay? This was during the civil war between the north and the south, uh, Israel, and so they had split. So there's Israel and there's Judah, okay? And Israel's capital at this time was Samaria, and Judah's capital was Jerusalem, okay? And so King Ahaz is the king of Judah, and he's in Jerusalem, And there's this fear at the time that he's going through because there's two northern powers. One is Israel and one is Syria. And and King Ahaz thinks that they're going to come in and invade. And so he's worried. He's terrified. And so what he's doing is he's walking around the city and he's going up and he's inspecting the water supply. All right? He wants to check out to make sure that if they go under siege that the water that they have will be sufficient and that their aqueducts are working or, or their channels are working and they have, they have water sources, okay? So he's, he's, this is in Isaiah 7. So he's shoring up all of this stuff and in the midst of it, the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah. And so God comes to Isaiah and says, hey, King Ahaz is going through this stuff. I want you to go and find him. He's at this upper pool and I want you to go and find him and give him a message, okay? And the message I want you to give him is stop freaking out. This isn't going to happen. You are terrified right now. Your world is in uproar, but don't worry. These powers, these two specific powers, are going to come to nothing. Okay? But he also says something else, because Ahaz, in the midst of this, has been plotting his own way of handling this. So it's not just protecting himself. He's been trying to create an alliance with, here we go, Assyria. Okay? So there's Syria and Israel up north that they're worried about. And then there's Assyria, which is the big superpower that, that, you know, Ahaz is like, well, maybe if I align myself with him. If you remember, one of the basic priorities in the entire scripture's commandments is do not align yourselves with other nations and try to be like them. That's idolatry because you will end up worshiping the idols that they worship, having the values that they have, and you will end up essentially losing the purity of, of following me, okay? So don't do that. Don't seek to, to power grab, okay? So in the midst of all of this, he comes, and, uh, and, and uh, he delivers, uh, Isaiah delivers kind of two messages. And the first thing he says at the upper, upper pool, it says that uh, Ahaz's heart was shaken. And the hearts of his people were shaken with fear. There's all this loose ground, uneven ground that he's walking on. And, uh, and he says, be careful. This is in, in uh, Isaiah 7, verse 4. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid don't lose heart. That's, what, that's the first thing that Isaiah says to King Ahaz. And anytime heaven meets earth, the message is always the same. Do not be afraid. So, comes in. Says, be careful, keep calm. Don't fear. Don't lose heart. And then, he says, nothing is going to come of this. All this fear. I'm going to protect you. 
okay? I'm, 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 I'm with you, okay? You're, you're so worried, but don't worry. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm going to protect you. And then it's, it's oh, and then, and then he says, listen, though, if you don't stand in faith, this is one of the most pa- powerful messages. You're, you're going to see where this is all connected in just a minute because I'm going to do it pretty quickly. In, in verse 9 of chapter 7, he says, remember, if you don't stand in faith, you won't, you won't stand at all. Okay? He says, if you do not stand in faith, you will not stand at all. And the idea here is, I know you can't see this. <laughs> I know you can't see the message I'm telling you. So it's going to take some faith. And if you don't stand in faith, you're not going to be able to stand at all. You're going to be tempted to create this alliance with Assyria. You're going to go and do something stupid. Okay, and he says, you know what? You know what? He says, I will even, and this is God speaking through Isaiah. He said, ask anything. Ask for a sign. This is a very rare moment. Normally, people are told, don't ask for a sign. Ask for a sign. It can be as high as the heavens or as deep as the ocean depths. It's, it's so beautiful. The, the writing in Isaiah is fabulous. It's such great poetry. It can be as high as the heavens or as deep as the depths. Ask anything, and God will grant you a sign. And King Ahaz says, nah, I don't know. <laughs> he says, and he tries to make it sound high and holy. He says, I will not ask God for a sign. But what he's really saying is, I don't want to go there. I'm making my own plans. I, trust is too difficult. I'd rather try to figure out how to stand on my own without faith. But Isaiah's words echo. Stand in faith or you won't be able to stand at all. And so he says, well, fine. And this is where we can pick it up um, in, in Isaiah 7. Uh, in, the king refused. No, I will not test the Lord like that. When Isaiah said, listen, well, you royal family of David, isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right, then. The Lord himself will give you a sign. In other words, enough of this. Enough of this. I'm, if, if you're going to go your own way, fine, but I'm going to give you a sign so that you can see this and remember what's true and what's real. Okay? And so what he says right after this, he says, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. By the time the child is old enough to, to choose what's right and reject what's wrong, he'll be eating yogurt and honey. For before the child is that old, the lands of the two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. So he's saying, listen. He, he literally says, look. So we are to understand this as he directs his attention. And, and at this point, virgin in Hebrew simply means young woman, different than Greek. So, so he says, listen, this woman, she's, she's going to give birth. It might be a family member. It might be somebody that works. It could be his wife. Some people think it's his wife. Whatever. And this child's name is going to be Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And before he's even, what, five, six, seven years old, these countries that you fear so much, they're going to fade away. They will not be a power. Okay? Fascinating. And for some of you, I'm getting messed with right now. But it's okay. Don't worry. Um, and so, so anyways, so, so this is the story. All right? The virgin will conceive a child, and you're going to call him God with us. Okay, now, presumably, we do know that this, we don't, we're not told anymore about this moment, but we are, we do know that both Israel and Syria both fall apart in the coming generation, okay? So the prophecy comes true. They come to nothing, all right? Um, but so, so anyways, what this whole idea was of, of God saying through, through Isaiah, listen, this child is going to be named Emmanuel, and there is going to be a sign that this child embodies that is going to be the reminder that I am with you. 
Okay? Now, what that means in this context, in Isaiah's context, what that means is that God's on your side. God's supporting you. Okay? It's important, but it's different than what eventually will come. See, what we're encountering here um, is, is a God who is an advocate, who is assisting. I'm helping you, God says. I'm on your side. This child would be the sign that, that would symbolize God being with his people, swooping in and saving the day, bringing hope, that sort of thing. Okay, 750 years forward. Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. Matthew is deeply, deeply connected with the Jewishness of Jesus. Jesus is a brilliant rabbi in the way that Matthew helps present him. Each of the gospel writers present in slightly different ways. And Matthew knows Jewish background. He uses all sorts of Old Testament references. And so what he does is Matthew looks at this as he's telling the story of Jesus. He's familiar with the scriptures, and as he sees what's happening, he says, essentially, oh my goodness, this is the ultimate fulfillment of what at one point came in part and is now coming in a completely new way. See, the word for virgin in Greek is how you and I would understand that word. The virgin will give birth, and, and, and this is going to be Emmanuel. This is what is happening, he says, is, is the ultimate fulfillment. This happens all the time in the scripture. It's called dual prophecies, where a prophecy is, is given, and it's, it's uh, fulfilled in the immediate context. But later, there is a secondary nature to the prophecy that is bigger and bolder and way beyond what Isaiah could ever have imagined. And so, so what we get is we get this moment where Matthew is telling the story and quoting the scripture to be, to be fulfilled. And he's saying, what was, what was said long ago? No idea that this is what the real story would be. That no longer would, would the presence of God, would God, I am with you, simply mean that God is, is um, on your side. All of a sudden, it would mean that God is by your side. When Jesus comes, Karl, Karl Barth, one of the more influential theologians of, of this past century, said that when we speak about the attributes of God now, we must include humanness. When we acknowledge the attributes of God, humanness must now be on our list. The incarnation is more than Isaiah could have possibly ever imagined at the time, even when he spoke the words of God. The incarnation is God becoming something in radical solidarity with us to communicate you are not alone in a brand new way. So God in Christ takes on humanity, the early church fathers said, in order to heal it. In Christ, God takes on humanity in order to heal it, and he comes to us and then what's, what's so kind of fascinating and amazing, the beginning of the story that Matthew tells starts with this Jesus being called Emmanuel. And the last statement of Jesus that he makes in Matthew 28 is, guess what? Boom, Jesus came and told his disciples. This is the last thing that Jesus says according to Matthew. And he tells them to go and make disciples and to baptize people and to teach them. And the final thing he says is, I don't have it up on the screen because it was supposed to be a big reveal. There we go. The final thing he says is, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you get this? The entire bookend of the gospel is the presence of God, no matter what the circumstances are. All of the shaking ground, all of the instability of life, I am with you in a way that is completely different and radical because the word has become flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that continues not just for the 30 years that Jesus spent on the earth, 
but for the rest of time because of the power of his spirit. This is super important. I think the temptation for us is sometimes to fall back on the pre-Jesus mentality about the presence of God. We, we leave it thinking that maybe God is on our side, but we forget that God is at our side. It's mysterious, yeah, but it's, it's true in so many ways that we have a God who is with us, who has walked where we walk, who has felt what we've felt, who, have, who has struggled where we've struggled. This is the miracle of, of the Word became flesh. Um, and knowing that sort of reality of Emmanuel is more than we can ever imagine. That, that sort of promise of a steady presence can transform how we walk through even our most unstable realities. Um, so here comes a big transition. Let's talk about mental health and the presence of God. Because one of the things that we can do is we can often give lip service to, yes, God is with us, God is with us, Jesus Emmanuel, God is with us. And yet so often the feelings and the things that we go through are so up and down that what we feel is just an absence many, many times. We have felt for a while that we need to talk honestly because the church in North America has so much struggle with, under, with, with the ability to talk about mental health. And, and this, we're not simply talking about mental illness, although that's a major part of it. We're talking about what it means to journey with a steady God in the midst of an unsteady reality in so many of our lives, where our emotions go up and down, where we feel like, I want to have faith, but I, I'm just crawling in the dark. And so, uh, you know we've been having these interviews for the past few weeks. Sabrina, come on up. Uh, so, so this week, uh, Sabrina and I are going to talk a little bit, um, and I know we're totally going to go there on Christmas Sunday. We're going to go, we're going to, this is, this is the life pathway. Um, we're going to talk about mental health on, on Christmas Sunday, and the good news about why something changed dramatically when Jesus came to earth, about what it meant that God is with us. It's not the same as it was before, and, uh, and that is such, such, such good news. Um, we have a lot of stigmas in the church across North America, um, like I mentioned before, but honestly, it's keeping people from experiencing Jesus, number one, and from using their God-given gifts in the life of the church, number two. And this affects way more of us than maybe we want to think or talk about, right? So, Sabrina, let's talk. Yes, there's a mic right here that, oh, whoops, it ran away from us. No, number two. Perfect. So I'll let Sabrina, you know, share about herself in just a minute. I will say Sabrina is one of our pastors here. So we have a three-person pastoral team, uh, myself, Dwayne, and Sabrina. And, uh, and Sabrina has um, shared on, on multiple occasions and has led us in many ways. Um, but, but there are some parts of her story uh, that maybe she hasn't shared yet. Um, and, and it really affects kind of how we, how we see this. So we're going to talk about like four questions um, Sabrina, you've had some varied experiences uh, with, with mental illness and mental health struggles over a, a long number of years, mm -hmm. right? Um, and we've talked about how these, these personal experiences kind of point to a, a spectrum of mental health challenges. Right. Not everything is the same. Um, and, and so some go from kind of, well, well can, you, can you talk? You've, you've mentioned these three things to me before. You've mentioned circumstantial, chronic, and profound. 
in terms of that time where, where our head and our mind is not telling us the same truths that we may actually believe or want to believe about Jesus. So can you just explain that for a little bit and we can get technical just for a minute? Yeah, and this, this is not technical as, as in from expert. This is technical as in these are words that I made up. Okay, <laughs> so um, I'm sharing my life experience. I am, uh, I am not sharing something out of a textbook, but a lot of stuff in textbooks would, would fit with this too. I, I'm, not, I'm not going rogue here. Um, and actually, before we jump all the way into that, we had talked about... Um, we want to be careful with terminology oh, this yeah. morning, and there is no really perfect way to do that. So if, if I say anything stupid, please have grace toward me, okay? My intention is to talk about people, myself, people I love, people I have never met, who are struggling with mental illness or who are struggling to maintain and nurture their mental health. And that's a mouthful. And I'm not going to talk about crazy people this morning because I know that's derogatory. I don't even like it when I am tempted to call myself that. But it's, it's hard to know the right words. Do you, do you say someone who has bipolar disorder? Do you say someone who is living with bipolar disorder? Do you say somebody who's bipolar? Do you say a bipolar person? It's, it's very complicated. So please just understand my intention and Keith's intention here yeah. is to talk as respectfully and building up Lee as we can. Yeah, and there's about so many limitations that come when yeah. we're afraid to actually yeah. be able to have conversations because we're worried about getting something wrong. Right. 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 And so that's one thing that right. we can get past. Um, okay. So this idea of a spectrum, um, in my own life, I have experienced what I would call circumstantial battles for my mental health, um, where something externally has happened that has made it impossible for my mind to work in a healthy way for a period of time. I have experienced chronic mental illness, where there's no circumstance that should be explaining this. I don't know why this is the way life is right now, but this is the way life is right now, and things aren't working well. Um, and I would love to be able to point to something external, and there ain't nothing there. And then there's profound mental illness, which has impacted my family. I have um, a son who is here this morning who has given me permission to, to share bits of our story together, who is diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, I have another son that many of you have heard about who is currently uh, incarcerated for 68 years, who does not have a solid diagnosis, but anyone who has spent any time with him in the last eight years would agree that he is profoundly mentally ill. Mm. So um, all three of those things are a part of our world, they're part of our families. This is us. We're not saying, oh, those poor people out in the world who don't know yeah. Jesus, who have mental health struggles. We should pray for them, we should be kind to them. No, this is us, this is me. This is yeah. Fred and me, this is Fred, Sam and me, okay? So yeah. that, that's where we kinda wanna start, is, is to, to, to start with the normalizing, yeah. and to say, oh, this is story space, I'm sharing me. Yeah, and, and if we haven't been a part of that world or people aren't sure, well, like, does this only affect you if you've had a diagnosis given by a doctor at some point? And the circumstantial stuff you're talking about, this is about, it, it involves that, but it's also about us walking through seasons where we just feel, like, unstable, unsteady, not able to, um, let me move this for folks over here, um, not able to, to grasp the things that we know to be true. Right. 
on a different level because our feelings are just betraying us in those ways or, or that reality. And, uh, and so, so in that way, we're not just talking about like, un, we keep, we're going to say this over and over again. We're not just talking about an issue. We're talking about us and, and the people that we love and, and ourselves and, and all of the times that we walk through moments of, of instability and, and how that works. So, so I'm going to ask you to tell a brief story about each of those three levels of experiences, specifically keeping in mind of, of focusing it now on what did it mean that, that Jesus is God with us in light of what we feel mm-hmm. in moments like that and, and the challenge of, of life when the mind is, feels broken, yeah. to be honest, whether it's short-term or long-term. Yeah. So can you just uh, share, maybe give us a, a framework um, for, I, I guess, um, we did want to do a framework, right? So we're going to look at the, the paradigm uh, for facing that battle of mental stability. We're going to look at um, the role of personal choices, and then we're going to look at the role of the body of Christ and community in uh, kind of grabbing onto the constancy of Jesus' right. um, presence when everything feels unstable. So start with circumstance. Okay. All right. So yeah, so in everything that I'm sharing, like be, be looking for that, be looking for the paradigm, the world, the, the, the view of the world and how I'm fitting the pieces together. Okay. We all have a paradigm. We view our lives through a lens and we, we recognize um, some of that consciously and some of it is just subconscious running, but we, we all see things through paradigms and mental illness affects your paradigm. And so in each of these situations, there, there's something in the way that I see things that needs to be adjusted. And the presence of God has an effect on that. And then personal choices and community. Um, so as I talk about these things, I'm going to use the expressions helper and coper. And a coper is somebody who is battling for their own mental health, who, who is overcoming challenges and struggling. And a helper is somebody who loves someone who is coping. And they're trying to help them in, um, in practical and effective ways. And they are also being impacted by mental illness themselves. Um, in 1996, I was pregnant with my fourth child. So I had Sam, I had Becca, I had Jacob, and now I was pregnant with Beatrice. And when I was 20 weeks pregnant, um, things uh, became very clearly wrong. Something was, was not okay. And uh, a bunch of tests later, we found that for whatever reason, Beatrice um, could not move in the womb. Her heart appeared to be strong and healthy, but uh, they had no way to figure out whether she would be viable or not. And so uh, I was put on bed rest, and for the remainder of the pregnancy, I carried her to term. Um, We just waited to see, because there was no way to know whether she would be able to breathe until she was born. And so she was born on July 19th, 1996, and she lived for about an hour and a half before Mm -hmm. she died. She was not able to breathe, but her heart was strong, and it it beat for over an hour. Technically, I've never been able to figure out whether that's called a stillbirth or not. That's what most people refer to it as. But I remember at the time being angry that people said that because I thought, no, she was alive when she was born. I was there, you know, (laughs) I know. Um, And that was the start of my first serious battle with circumstantial depression. And everybody got why I was sad, right? People were really nice. Oh, dead children generally make people feel sympathetic towards you. You know, like that's a biggie, right? Um, What was... Interesting about it, though, is that even in, in a circumstance that people understand and validate, there are still assumptions there. Time is one of the big assumptions. Hmm. You get 
a week past the death of your baby and people are super sympathetic. You get a month past and people are very sympathetic. You get three months past and a lot of people are starting to forget and that's okay, that's their life and they're moving on dealing with their stuff. By six months past, if you're still struggling, there are people who are beginning to say, honey, you gotta move on. You gotta deal with this stuff. You can't give in to this. You're, you're, you're gonna, and then you start feeling all this condemnation on top mm. of it because it's still really hard. And you're looking for the script. I was looking for the script for the deadline. What's the time frame that I'm supposed to be following for this? Somebody tell me, at month four, what should I be doing with my emotions? And looking back on this, I realize I'm not sure, at least in our culture, that we know how to be sad well. It's, it's very complicated to be sad well. And there are cultures and there have been um, people groups over the years and across the world who do things like, like you hire professional mourners when someone dies. A professional mourner, that is such an odd concept mm -hmm. for us sitting here in Delaware in 2019. Um, but it's, it's interesting to me that I'm not sure we know how to be sad very well, and I didn't know how to be sad well. And I wanted somebody to tell me how to be a good Christian and make Jesus proud while I was really sad. Um, and so my paradigm was that whatever I was thinking and feeling was somehow a reflection of my standing with Jesus. Okay? If, I was, if I was grieving in ways that were clearly showing that I was moving on toward healing, then Jesus could be like, good girl, she's making me look good. She's showing mm. people that I redeem and I heal. Except that it was like two steps forward and then one back. And sometimes it was one step forward and three back. You know what I'm saying? And so then there's, there's all this, am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? I don't know. I feel like I'm so conflicted and so confused in all of it. So there's this level of guilt that comes from spiritual, your spiritual life too that others, without even realizing it, can sometimes add to that. Um, and Absolutely. even though that's not what we, uh, we sense as the deepest truth of God. Right, and I didn't theologically believe that at that mm -hmm. time, but that was my, that was my feeling. Mm -hmm. So that, that paradigm was, it's always going to be like this. I'm now a broken Christian, and it's always going to feel this way, and I don't know what to do about it. I'm trying to do the right things, and I don't seem to be getting mm -hmm. better. I don't seem to be like I was before. I don't know how to get back to where I was before. Um... In terms of personal choices, there were a lot of me allowing other people to make choices for me. People telling me when I should be ready to do this, that, and the other thing. Uh, because I didn't trust myself to make those choices. And I'm a people pleaser, so that was my go-to. There are people whose personalities are the opposite and who dig their heels in and refuse to try anything because they say, you don't know what's good for me. But that's the, that's the other side of the same coin. That's the sense of confusion um, I have choices to make here, and I'm not sure that I'm going to make the right ones, or I'm not sure you're going to make the right ones for me if you try to help. And so the, the place of community in all of that is, is that it's, it's very difficult to, um, to encourage someone who is dealing with a circumstance like this or to be the person in it unless you first recognize that there is no script, that there's not one right way to handle a traumatic circumstance. And um, the most vivid image of somebody who did it right was a man named Walt, who was a part of the church that I grew up in. And when I was in the hospital, Beatrice was born at about um, eight in the morning. And by close to noon, um, 
she had died, they had taken her body, they had moved me into a regular room, and my, um, my ex-husband, her father, um, had gone with some hospital personnel to take care of things, and I was by myself in this room, and I lost it. And as I was sobbing hysterically, the door to my room opens and this man walks in. Now, I'd known him since I was a kid, but we weren't close. He was there to see Al. He was there to see my husband. And um, he walked in the room, and of course, I'm totally embarrassed because I'm sobbing hysterically in a hospital gown, you know, like not one of your finer moments. And Walt came over and said, I'm just gonna sit. And he sat on the windowsill. And that man sat there for 45 minutes, an hour. And then he got up after I was, I was so tired I couldn't cry anymore. And he came over and gave me a kiss on the forehead and he left. He didn't say a word. But Walt on the windowsill has <laughs> defined my life since 1996. <laughs> show up. You show up and you sit. And you don't try to fix it. You be a professional mourner and you sit in the dust and you cry with people when their life is so painful. And once you've done that, you've earned the right to be trusted. So that, that in, in my mind, is a huge piece of what community looks like when there's circumstances like that. And that's incredibly difficult for us, I think, uh, when, when we are helpers, because everything in us wants to, to be a fixer. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting that we're not talking about copers and fixers. We're talking about copers and helpers, and, and I, I think the average person says, well, I want to I do something that's going to make it all right. And until the paradigm shifts with that, where we realize that that's not always our role. Our role is to show up and, and make space mm -hmm. um, as we love each other, as we love people that are going through incredibly difficult times, that that's that we're allowed to be at peace with that and maybe we have to be at peace, not, not even we're allowed. Like we need to learn to be yeah. at peace with that so that, um, so that we can allow for space for God to continue to, to meet people where they're at and for us not to figure out the script and, and direct it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. sadness is not a sin and there's a time and a place to just be sad with somebody and that can be the most glorifying thing that you can ever do in the name of Jesus, you know? Um, so that 1996 kind of ushered me into a season of dealing with chronic depression and sometimes anxiety. And um, it took me a long time to realize that's what was going on. It started out being tied to the holidays. I've battled holiday depression ever since 1996. I don't know why. Beatrice died in July. Doesn't make any sense. It's just the way it is, right? Mm -hmm. And um, my paradigm for that um, was that I couldn't, I couldn't predict it. I should be able to progress through this. And instead, over time, I began to realize, no, I'm running laps on a track. This is a long race. It may be a marathon. You know, I may battle depression for the rest of, of my natural life. I don't know. I absolutely know that God could supernaturally remove it. I have no doubt that he could do that. To this point, he has not chosen to. And so it comes in waves. And there are times that I am symptom-free, and there are times that the symptoms are overwhelming. And it is very difficult to function. And having to, um, to shift my paradigm to, I am running this race. I am getting somewhere. I feel like I'm not, because I have seen this same spot on the track 112 times already. But I am running laps. It's a different lap now than it was the last time I saw it. And I am getting somewhere. 
Um, progress does not look like the end of symptoms. Progress looks like learning to manage and handle when the symptoms arise. Learning to reach out and ask for help when the symptoms require outside intervention. Learning to choose wisely where to invest the energy that I do have during a season where my symptoms are bad. And this idea of just, it's chronic illness has been hugely helpful to me. If I know someone who has epilepsy, if I know someone who has diabetes, if I know someone who has osteoarthritis, there are times where their symptoms are worse than others, and I don't associate any degree of spirituality with that. Yeah. Let, this is a chronic illness in my mind. Let's move into that for a second. Yeah. Um, if, if someone is, uh, is dealing with, let's say, epilepsy, the, the idea that, well, I'm sure that you're, like, that's a spiritual deficit in your life oh, immediately, clearly. right? Oh, yeah. And so, like, <laughs> it's all so, over the Bible. So you're not as mature. You're not as mature of a of a, a Christian because of that. Um, we wouldn't we wouldn't say that. In fact, most of us would say that's kind of bonkers. Um, well, there I just yeah, used this. Yeah, look, it comes in all the time. <laughs> um, but but one of the things that you said to me that struck me so profoundly. So there's a difference between the mind and the spirit. And sometimes the reality is that the mind either feels or is broken for a season or for a long season, and that does not mean that the spirit's broken. That does not, and, and, and sometimes we want to judge others and their spirituality if they're journeying through mental health and challenges. Oh boy, do we want to judge ourselves. And, what, and, 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 and ourselves, and then what we end up doing is we end up making people say, well, I'm disqualified. Yep. And so therefore, I can't, I guess, have a meaningful role my faith can't have a meaningful role in the life of a church, um, in, in my family. I can't be um, a leader. I can't... I'm not dependable. Yes. And, and so, so when we learn how to separate these things and understand illness as illness um, and not moral deficiency, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden we start to be able to say, oh my gosh, there's so many people who have incredible gifts to give to, to God and to the world that have yeah. kind of had a box put around them. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the messages that I'm really hoping people are hearing this morning is you are not disqualified. If there is something that does not work dependably in your mind, you are not on the B list with Jesus. Um, you know, yeah, your, your mind has chemistry, it has electricity going in it. There, there are things there completely separate from your intellect, from your creativity, from your relational capacity, from your communication mm. skills. You also have neurons firing, and you have levels of different um, chemicals. And there is a physical, tangible component to the way your mind works that we don't often make space for in It's one in or the, the other so often in the it Christian is. world. It's like all the physical animal realities, and that's it. Or it's, or, or it's, it's all, all super spirit. spiritual. And we are, we are, the word became flesh. <laughs> like that's the whole point of Jesus. That's why we baptize people. It's wet. It's all encompassing. It's, it's the body and the spirit connected. And we are, we are deeply, deeply integrated, connected beings. Our bodies are so important. They're a part of how God makes us. Um, and, and they work in conjunction with our spirits. And it's always a both and. It's never an either or. That's literally what half of the gospel writings are about, is, is Paul attacking these people called the Gnostics, yes. who thought that it was all about the spirit and not about the physical. And they even said Jesus wasn't even super physical because physical is bad. Mm -hmm. You know, matter is bad. The body is evil and wicked. 
and, and it's only the spirit. So Jesus just appeared to have a human body. It wasn't really. He couldn't possibly condescend to that level. Well, then you and, add to and that the, like, Greek, no. the Greek idea of the intellect, that, that uh, in Greek society at the time that the, the, the church is being founded, you know, the Greeks saw the mind as the intellect, as the ability to reason, and that, that was the spirit for them. Yeah. So if you decided something in your mind, if you came to believe it intellectually, that was evidence of spiritual work. And that's, that is not what mm. Jesus taught us about the way that we were designed, yeah. but that's something we fall into very often. All right, so we've only so, got like yeah, six we minutes only got a minute. yep. um, here before um, we so want to do our So then we get to thing. profound, and profound mental illness is a scary thing to talk about because there's still a huge stigma attached to it, and I am very grateful to Sam for saying, yeah, go ahead, make me a poster child for the morning. Um, so Sam was diagnosed when he was 20 with bipolar disorder for probably two to three years before that. Nobody in our house had any question that Sam had bipolar disorder. <laughs> we just hadn't had a medical community actually go through the steps. Um, symptoms appeared probably when he was very young. And, and it was, uh, is this just quirks in personality? Is this sensitivity? Is this, I don't know, I don't know. It's not like a light goes on on your forehead one day that says, you know, bipolar, schizophrenic. Like, it, do it doesn't light up and just show the world. It's very, it's very subtle often. And... Um, Sam is a super, super grounded, like, owns this. From the very beginning, he said, okay, if this is a part of my life, then I'm going to own it, and I'm going to do what I need to do as much as possible. That being said, Sam has had a full-on psychotic break. Sam has been fired from a job because people became aware that he had been in an inpatient program in a psych hospital. Hmm. Sam has had really hard stuff happen because sometimes when his meds are all messed up, and it takes a while to find the right meds. I am all for meds. This is not an anti-meds thing at all, okay? But it took a while to get the right cocktail. When they were messed up, Sam didn't make bad choices. Sam's perception of reality was so completely broken that there were delusions and hallucinations taking place. There were things being heard and seen that were not there. You cannot hold somebody responsible for poor decision-making when their senses are receiving input that is not reality, right? Like this is, this is just, this is illness. Walking through that as a helper and seeing somebody that I gave birth to that I love so dearly learn to be a coper has completely changed my life. It affected our entire family. I sat and talked for an hour with his younger brother last night about the impact it had on him to be 13 years old and have his brother diagnosed with bipolar disorder. It affects everyone close to you. And so there's such a need for community there to stop being afraid. It's called the no casserole illness. Did you know that? Mental health struggles are called the no casserole illness because you know, if you have a family and, and there's a, a car accident or there's pneumonia and somebody goes into the hospital, what do you do? You set up the meal brigade, right? And you bring food. But when somebody is in a locked ward for five days because their schizophrenia is not responding appropriately to medicine and they're delusional, the family doesn't ask for meals because the family doesn't want anybody to know that mom's in a locked ward. So nobody sends a casserole. We gotta get past that. This is why we're talking about we this. We gotta on, get past that. Yeah, the it's time. fourth Sunday of Advent. It's time. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> well, can we can we springboard then specifically to all of that? So so why does it matter so much that God's presence is is constant and that Jesus is 
with us by his example, by his spirit, by his people um, as Emmanuel. And it's, it's because that is the constancy and the stability. We try very hard to create stability in instability when there is mental illness present. And it doesn't work that way. You cannot create healthy bone structure if you have severe osteoporosis. You can't just make it happen by willing it. The same is true with mental illness. But Jesus is that constancy. And when we are in our most symptom-controlled or symptom-free moments, we need the spiritual disciplines of learning what his word says, of learning what is true. We need to develop the spiritual disciplines of praying, praying as easily as we breathe, so that when the symptoms ramp up, that is already there in place. It's already a habit. We need to have those relationships that we are working to build when we're doing great. Those are the times to sit and talk with somebody and say, this is weird, but I need to go over protocol with you. Because when I get bad, I'm asking you to be one of my people. Will you be one of my people? This is what needs to happen when I'm bad. You may need to take my car keys away if I start talking this way because I will be a danger to myself or others behind the wheel of a car. Practical things like that, these are not conversations to have when you are really feeling horrible. You know? Because we believe in the constancy of God through Jesus, mm-hmm. we learn to develop constant habits that can support lay, us when we, we don't feel that constant. We lay him as the undergirding yeah. so the, under everything. Yeah. So we learn the practices that we right. can do that are constant practices that we can hold on to right. in times of instability because of what we believe about God. Right, yeah. exactly. And, the, and community is the same way. You know, community is responsible for being the body of Christ. That means connection. Mm-hmm. And that means support. And you can't just jump in at a moment of trauma and crisis and be that. You have to build that kind of connection when things are not exploding or melting down. Hmm. Well, so, so Sabrina, you... A big part of this is that your, your journey, you sense God doing something that has been affirmed by many of us um, to spend your life working to create some new systems for care and ministry to both helpers and copers um, in, in the mental health world that God's opening doors for. But for the rest of us, like, what do we need to hear as we kind of continue to, to move on um, as people who some of us are copers, some of us are helpers, some of us want to, sit, to be more compassionate and understand what it looks like to embody the, the hope of Jesus in the lives of those that we love. Um, so what are some final takeaways that we need to be able to, to hear? So the first takeaway is this is us. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say it again. This is us. This is not somebody out someplace else. This is us. One in four adults in the United States will be diagnosed with mental illness this year. And one in five adults in the U.S. has been diagnosed with profound mental illness. It's not a rare thing. And I don't know why it's like this now. It was not like this a generation ago, and it was definitely not like this two generations ago. It, ju- it just is what it is. I don't know if it's the pace of our world, if it's the stresses, if it's just things breaking down over time. I don't know. But mental illness is a pervasive, constant, normal part of every family in this room. So this is us. That's the first thing. The second thing is Emmanuel. Because Jesus, this is, this is great. This is not mine, but he said this when we were working on it. It came from somebody. In Jesus, we see who God is, and we see what perfect humanity looks like in ways that we can actually understand. You are in no way outside the good news of Jesus coming, outside the good news of Emmanuel, God with 
us, not just for us, with us. You are in no way outside that good news, whether or not you can feel his immeasurable love. Feeling the presence of Jesus and the love of Jesus is not a measure of your worth in the kingdom of God, nor is it a measure of whether or not you can be used by him to minister profoundly to others. In, in fact, Jesus has a conversation with Thomas in the post-resurrection moment in the book of John, and Thomas has trouble with believing, but eventually he gets to see everything. He gets all the feels, literally, right? I'm going to feel my side. He gets all the feels. He feels it. And the statement that Jesus makes right after that in John 20, 29, because you've seen me, you've believed. But blessed are the people who don't see and still believe. And to those of you who say, yeah, I wish I could feel it in certain moments. I wish I could feel the presence of God, but, but something's not clicking, right? But I, I want to, I long to, I, I want to stay faithful. I want to believe in the presence that, that Jesus is. Like, do you understand that you are, you are special in God's sight? That, that, that Jesus is saying, I understand for some of you how hard this is going to be because you're not going to see it in every way. And, and just, just so that you know, you are special in my sight because it's harder for some to walk that path than others. And those that it's harder for, you're blessed. Like, I see you as special in a unique way. And sometimes we need to hear that um, when we're going through uh, seasons where we just feel so alone. Yeah. Uh, if you suffer with these things, you are uniquely qualified as a minister of the gospel yeah. of Jesus Christ because you get yeah. it and you are working harder than the person who does not have that chemical imbalance or whatever yeah. the circumstance is. Yeah, and so in that passage in Isaiah, you know, um, when he said this is going to be a sign for you, uh, and I was talking with a few of you uh, that have journeyed through this this week and and one of, one of the conversations was talking about how when you're in the midst of that hole of depression, maybe, um, you, you want a sign. <laughs> God, just could show me a sign. And maybe the sign that we need to hold on to is, is Matthew 1. This is the sign. The virgin will give birth to a child. And, that's, and that is the sign that we have to hold on to, that Jesus has indeed come into the world, that it's, not no, it's no longer God on your side, it's God at your side. Um, and, 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 and we've been given the body of Christ. There's a reason it's called the body of Christ, the church, to be the body of Christ. You know, one of you mentioned that uh, one of the things that helped you get through it was borrowing somebody else's faith during the depths of your despair. Such a good expression. No faith for yourself, but someone was walking alongside you, and you say, can I borrow it? And you, we, we can't own somebody else's faith, but my goodness, we can borrow it when we need it, and that is the beauty of community. We get to be the body of Christ for each other. And um, yeah, to just sit with people in the dark, maybe uh, to give faith to borrow and to be the presence of God during invisible seasons. Uh, that is such good news. That is such incredibly good news. 